As we wind down the summer, we're winding down the minor prophets. Today, Zechariah. Next week, Malachi. And we're done. Thank you for engaging with us as we look at these old prophets whose words still speak to us today. Uh, if you're joining us for the first time, if you're not familiar with this, Amy and I have been dividing the sermon time for this series. I've been doing an introduction, trying to set the stage a bit about the particular prophet or the type of, uh, of writing, and Amy has picked a text from that prophet to offer a homily. So here are these words of introduction to the prophet Zechariah. But before I begin, I need to apologize to you for last week. I know I confused you all last week because I began my introduction of Haggai by saying that the book of Ezra connects Haggai and Zephaniah. And the truth is, I couldn't figure out how Haggai and Zephaniah were connected. I knew they were not historical contemporaries, and I know that you knew that because you've been following along so closely with us this summer. But I must confess that I didn't have enough time to study my misunderstanding, and so I assumed that the commentary meant that Haggai and Zephaniah were related thematically, and I could see that. So I said, while Zephaniah and Haggai seem not to have been chronological contemporaries, their prophecies are related. And yet I know you are all confused by my confusion, and it just surprised me that no one stood up in the sanctuary and yelled out, Russ, the commentary says Zechariah, not Zephaniah. It was Zechariah. I just realized it this week when I went back and looked at the commentary, Zechariah not Zephaniah. That's why it didn't make any sense to me or to you when I did that introduction last week. So, um, I was confusing Zephaniah, who was not a contemporary of Haggai, with Zechariah, who was both a historical contemporary and one whose prophecy dovetails. So, I apologize to you. And now that we have cleared that up, I want to talk to you today about the apocalyptic language of Zechariah, not Zephaniah. And I I wanted to address this to our young people. There are only a couple young people here, so all of you today get to be young people. And let me confess to you that I'm repeating something, a, a, a sermon from last fall, which I spoke about the apocalyptic language of Daniel. And I said, I want to address this sermon to our young people because youth may be the best equipped to understand apocalyptic language. There was a whole row of young people back there, and they were really engaged as we talk about the apocalyptic language of the Bible. Zechariah, not Zephaniah, is all about apocalyptic language. Young people, all of you, here's the deal. If these words sound familiar to you, thank you for listening last fall. I was preaching from the weird book of Daniel, but it fits today, so let me repeat some of that. I'm going to use two big words for you, and don't let big words scare you. The first word is apocalyptic. The apocalypse is the end of the world. So anything apocalyptic refers to ideas and images about the end of time. We usually think of this in dramatic terms, some grand battle between good and evil, nuclear war, chaos, destruction, dark stuff. And people don't seem to like that word. Like when I use it in the sermon, some people sort of roll their eyes and just turn off the lights, you know, which is ironic 
Because the truth is, we love apocalyptic stuff. Apocalyptic books and movies are always bestsellers. In my day, it was Mad Max and The Terminator. More recently, you can think The Walking Dead, The Matrix, Tom Hanks' recent movie, Finch, which was called an apocalyptic must-see. People have always been drawn to apocalyptic themes. The word apocalypse is a Greek word. Don't let that scare you either. The word means revealing. So the biblical book of Revelation is actually entitled in Greek, The Apocalypse, The Revealing, The Revelation, The Apocalypse of John. This revealing of some great hidden mystery is connected with the end of the world. In stories and movies, it's usually the job of the main character to reveal this truth, saving the world in the process. So, the first word is apocalypse, the end of the world. Though apocalyptic tales sometimes picture an entirely different world, not the literal end of the world, so the Harry Potter series, for, for example, and I began that sermon in the fall talking to our young people about Harry Potter. Harry Potter is considered a post-apocalyptic fiction. One book review says, Harry Potter holds many of the characteristics prevalent, prevalent in intertestamental apocalyptic literature. Young people didn't know they were reading intertestamental apocalyptic literature when they read all seven of the Harry Potter books, but it's filled with symbolism and pessimism, the world shaking at its foundation, and the triumph of God. That's apocalyptic, the world shaking at its foundations. So the first word is apocalyptic. The next big word, which is also not hard to understand, is eschatology. From the Greek word eschaton, which means end, eschatology, is the study of the end. And just as apocalyptic can extend beyond a literal meaning, eschatology might also extend to mean not just the literal end of the world, but end things, important things, last or lasting things. The two words are connected, you know. The apocalypse is the end of the world, and eschatology is a theological study of the end or of last or lasting things. And scholars, you know, those Bible nerds, tell us that there's a specific kind of writing we find in the Bible, and the writing is called apocalyptic literature. Like fiction or nonfiction, the genre of apocalyptic has a specific style and a specific purpose. Apocalyptic writing is not necessarily based in history, but is always characterized by its use of dramatic elements. The, element, the, the events seem world-ending, and there are supernatural characters, angels and demons and human heroes or heroines. These human and non-human agents are always at war, and it's a battle between good and evil, and there are always strange features to apocalyptic literature. The sky turning dark, the moon turning to blood, the rivers drying up, weird, frightening creatures and beasts horns and wings and additional limbs, extra feet and stuff, weird stuff. But here's the thing that puzzles me. When we see this stuff in the movies, we love it. We can't get enough of it. 
We can't get enough of apocalyptic, Mad Max wandering a nuclear scorched earth, or walking dead zombies hungry for blood, the weird wizards and characters in Harry Potter, children of the Hunger Games killing each other in apocalyptic gore. We can't get enough But let me read it from the Bible, and people go, the Bible is so weird and boring, and the Bible is so out of date and out of touch with reality. Who wants to hear about that stuff? But all that wild, world-shaking-at-the-foundation stuff has always been appealing because it is an exaggeration. It's just a bigger version of what we are actually feeling in our own world right now right here. The world shaking at the foundations. Apocalyptic stories do not predict the end of the world. Zechariah speaks of weird things like other apocalyptic writers. A man riding a red horse, four horns in the sky. A man with a measuring line in his hand. A lampstand of gold with a bowl on top. A flying scroll. These are part of a vision, an ingenious creatively weird message to the people of Judah who were trying to get their lives back together after 70 years of exile. These words do not contain some secret message that you can decode to learn when the world will end, who will start the nuclear Armageddon. No, that's not what they're about. What apocalyptic writers like Zechariah mean is the apocalypse is now. Zechariah was writing to his people saying the apocalypse is now. And today, can you feel it in your own life? In our crazy, chaotic world that feels like it's just on the brink of meltdown almost all the time, can you feel it? That's what apocalyptic language is about. It's an exaggeration, a picture of a bizarre world, maybe a scorched landscape that so often matches the fears and confusions, the weirdness and stress, the hunger for meaning that we all feel. In Zechariah's day, it was a nation trying to return to something that felt normal after those exiles who knew no one in Jerusalem knew returned from 70 years in Babylon, and they started talking about reclaiming their land that someone in Jerusalem now owned and wanting to return Jerusalem to the way that it was before they left. They wanted to rebuild a temple and return everything to the tranquility of the good old days. Today, we're living in the chaos of bitter division. Fact and fiction as competing realities the future of democracy hanging in the balance, environmental collapse due to changing climate, a global pandemic that has cost six and a half million lives and has wreaked havoc on a global economy. And the purpose of apocalyptic writing, whether Harry Potter or Zechariah, is to draw us in, to draw us into a terrifying world because that's what the real world is like. There is prejudice and hatred and bigotry and wars and famine and fires and earthquake, global pandemics and disagreements about the past and the future, where we've been, where we need to go, chaos through and through. 
So apocalyptic stories draw us in, and then they use their dramatic language to paint an entirely new picture of what can be. Ultimately, apocalyptic is not a story of fear, but of courage. Not a message of despair, but of hope. It's not the end of the world, it's a new beginning for all things. When I look at our world, when I read the headlines and watch the news, observe the trending lines, note the viral tweets, the chaos we are living is no weirder than apocalyptic visions in the night. I don't know why we have such a hard time reading the Bible, except that mostly we just don't read it. To a people in Judah 2,500 years ago, also barely hanging on to their sanity, it was the strange language of apocalyptic that brought the strange hope of God, a hope so desperately needed. Strange language, strange hope, so desperately needed today. May it be so. We've lived through some doom and gloom this summer to get to Zechariah, but finally we have a splendid message of hope. Russ has been confused about the whole Zephaniah-Zechariah thing for weeks. Proof. Several weeks ago, Russ sent me some information supposedly about Zephaniah that was to be preached early August. In that message, he said of Zephaniah... The theme is messianic eschatology, so I think we should talk about future and hope, the kingdom that is promised to be, being whom God called us to be, all that the world could be if we responded to the promises of God, etc., etc. So I received this message just prior to our first Wednesday supper of August, and Russ was out of town. And so just as I was about to start the announcements and share prayer concerns, the 40 or so of us that gathered at supper, I said, y'all, I have good news. I pulled up my phone and I said, let me read to you about this Sunday. It's going to be about hope. And there was great rejoicing among all the people. I had no more gotten those words out of my mouth in front of the crowd gathered there on Wednesday than, than I got a text from Russ. Oops, that Zephaniah information I just sent you was really about Zechariah. Wrong book. I confused the two. This week is going to be hard. It's the warning about the day of the Lord. So I had to break it to the people. You're going to have to come back in several weeks if you want to hear about hope. And here we are today, finally, at hope. And as it turns out, hope is not all that easy to talk about or think about. And it's certainly that's not something that's easy to practice. Not to be misunderstood as wishful or magical thinking, I return to the words of Emily Dickinson that I have used before. Hope is the thing with feathers that perches in the soul and sings the tune without the words and never stops at all. Emily Dickinson wrote this poem in 1862. 
because people have been needing to cling to hope for a long, long time. That was a very prolific year in her poetry writing. It was just one of 1,800 poems that she penned during her lifetime. Dickinson seems to have lived as a recluse for most of her adult life, living at their family home, only rarely venturing out. Quiet and timid was her manner. But her poetry reflected a lively and imaginative and dynamic inner world. She was able to capture universal moments in a simple sentence and create metaphors that have withstood the test of time. Hope is the thing with feathers, stands out as a reminder to all, no matter the circumstances, each and every one of us has within us an entity of hope. Full of figurative language, this poem is just an extended metaphor transforming hope into a bird. The poet especially loved birds. So this bird that lives within us as hope is ever-present in the human soul. It sings, especially when times get tough. Hope springs eternal might be a reasonable summing up of Dickinson's poem. It makes me think of that line in the Gospels at the baptism of Jesus where he saw the heavens open up. And the Spirit of God descending like a dove and resting on him. Perhaps that was simply the moment where hope was truly, finally infused into the very being of Jesus. Nothing about that moment made his life any easier. He still had sadness and anger. He still faced disappointment and grief. He still had to tend with hardship and tragedy. But if Dickinson was right, then maybe that descending dove might represent hope and how it lives in us, singing a tune without words and never stopping at all. The fact that we are still here 2,000 plus years after that dove spirit descended upon Jesus, we're still here talking about him. We're still here learning from him. We're still here seeking him and questioning him and following him and dedicating our very lives to his way. That has to be the definition of hope, doesn't it? Oh, I wish we could hear the tune of hope that plays in us, but we've turned the volume down because the world has caused us to do that. I wish we could be infused with the Spirit of God descending upon us like a dove and resting on us. Even though it seems impossible, that's what the prophet Zechariah said. Even though it seems impossible to you, just because it seems impossible to you, says God, does that also mean that it has to seem impossible to me? God asks, with God then, I guess all things are possible. End of war is possible. No more hunger, that is so possible. 
cures for diseases. That's possible. It's happening all the time. Kindness is possible. Love is possible. Forgiveness is possible. Grace and mercy, too. Just think, right now, some of our family of faith, they're uptown with the pride parade. I got a text last night from somebody saying, I'm going to be in charge of Park Road's presence at the pride parade next year because there's some churches showing us up down there. We would have said that's not possible not so many years ago. It's possible. Hope is possible. We see so much bad news. We hear so much bad news. We experience within our beings so much bad news. Just think about how much more bad news God sees and hears and experiences. And yet God does not let the bad news rule the day. Just because it seems impossible to you, does that mean that it's impossible to me? God asks. God continues to hope, to hope in us and with us and for us and through us. If we could just allow hope to live within us, what kind of difference would it make in the ways in which we act and talk and make our way in and around the whole world? Frederick Beatner died this past week. Clergy and laity all over the world grieve the loss of this voice among us. Beatner was an ordained Presbyterian minister and a prolific writer. He spoke about God and faith in ways that gave hope. So in searching for meditations to include in the bulletin today, I just immediately Googled Beatner and hope to find what I knew would be the best words for our theme today. Here's a portion of his writing. Then at last we see what hope is and where it comes from. Hope as the driving power and outermost edge of faith. Hope stands up to its knees in the past and keeps its eyes on the future. There has never been a time past when God wasn't with us as the strength beyond our strength, the wisdom beyond our wisdom, and whatever it is in our hearts, whether we believe in God or not, that keeps us human enough at least to get by despite everything in our lives that tends to wither the heart and make us less than human. To remember the past is to see that we are here today by grace and that we have survived as a gift. And he goes on to ask the question, and what does that mean about the future? What do we have to hope for, you and I, he asks. Humanly speaking, he answers, we have only the human best to hope for, that we will live out our days in something like peace and the ones we love with us. That if our best dreams never come true, neither at least will our worst fears. That something we find to do with our lives will make some little difference for good somewhere. And then when our lives end, we will be remembered a little while for the little good we did. 
That is our human hope. To have faith is to remember and wait, and to wait in hope is to have what we hope for already begin to come true in us through our hoping. Hope is central to the life of faith. To live without hope, you might as well be dead. And maybe that's why there are so many people around us these days that are dead inside because they've lost hope. So just consider this. The next time you find yourself despairing, which will probably be, I don't know, this afternoon, despairing about something, something in the world, something at your work, something in your family or even your extended family because despair is rampant. So consider the next time you find yourself despairing, just consider just to try it and see. Just think about hope. Perhaps the salve for despair is hope. Perhaps the balm for anguish is hope. Perhaps the solution for suffering is hope. Perhaps the response for sorrow is hope. Perhaps the fix for sadness is hope. Perhaps the answer for misery is hope. Hope doesn't have to use words. She just perches in the soul and lives within us, and she does not stop singing. Do you know how hard it's going to be to hope? This is work to hope, I mean. We're scared of it because she has disappointed us before hope anyway. We're leery of it because she cannot always be trusted. Hope, anyway. We are tired from all the previous hoping. Hope some more, anyway. Even though it seems impossible to us, well, that's just not God's perspective on it. Because God does not deal in impossibilities. So neither should we. Even though it seems impossible, I'm pleading with you. Hope anyway. May it be so. Amen.